We are gathered together for Exodus, and we're going to be hitting chapters 3 and the first half of 4 today. We're going to start with the very end of 2 because I ran out of time last week, and we're going to get all this done, I promise. And so I want to remind you all that we've got lots of old studies, including studies for Exodus, if you have missed them, that you can find on our website, stmichael.org rbs, which is Rector's Bible Study. We also have a podcast, so wherever you listen to your podcasts, you can go back and listen to all these studies, and we are backlogging all four years of the RBS study that we have done here, and so we hope you will take advantage of that. And I love questions. And so we had lots of great questions last week from those of you who were here live. We didn't have as many questions for those of you online, and so we hope that you will put those in the chat as we continue today. And we've got a few that we'll address at the beginning of this study. Let's jump right in with an opening prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We ask that you fill us with your spirit, that we can be inspired by the stories of salvation that you have told through your beloved people over centuries, and that today we can hear your continued call on each one of us, on our lives, the way that we share our community here at St. Michael and beyond, that we can continue to do work to help build up your kingdom here on earth. All this we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. We are going to jump in. Oh, I should mention... Last week I said we've got this companion study. This is the Everyone series, Exodus and Leviticus for Everyone, and this is written by John Golden Gay. These are available in the St. Michael Bookshop or wherever you buy your books, but there are a few in the bookshop, and the bookshop is open today if you don't have this and would like to do a little bit of reading in addition to this study. This is great, and by a little bit, I do not mean that you will spend hours. I mean you could spend 20, maybe 30 minutes kind of reading ahead or maybe reading this after our study, and I really do think that you will enjoy the way that he writes. As I mentioned at the very beginning of this study, although we are specifically doing Exodus and some of the other books right there in the first five books, we are really looking at a character study of Moses. I want us this year and next year to really delve into the characters of both Moses and David because knowing them will help us know Jesus best, the way that people understood Jesus over time. And so as I was thinking through, people have asked me, is there anything else you might be able to read? And there is one book I would love to recommend to you. It's not a commentary. It's not anything that we are doing in addition to this Bible study. But if you are interested in just a really interesting read, one that I promise you will be engaging— I would love to recommend to you Moses, Man of the Mountain, written by Nora Zeal, I'm sorry, Zora Neale Hurston. So you may know Zora Neale Hurston for other books, like Their Eyes Were Watching God. She wrote Moses, Man of the Mountain, and it is a very, it is an expanded tale of Moses as a person. And I promise you, it is very engaging, and I admit, I am a Bible nerd, but I took this to the pool with my kids years ago, and they were jumping and splashing and having the best time, and I was completely engrossed in this book. Beautiful day at the pool, I was reading this book. And so I promise, it's actually quite good. And so if you just wanted an extra book at some point this year, I really think you would love this one. I said last week that there is a lot of overlap in the way the story is told between Moses and Jesus. One of those ways is that the baby is threatened by the big bad leader, right? So we know that there is this infanticide moment where Pharaoh is trying to kill the baby boys. And so Moses' family has to try and save him. And that's why they put him in the basket and they send him down the river. And one of the things I said last week is, then Pharaoh's daughter found Moses and she knew he was an Israelite. And Maybe it's because he looked a little bit different, or his hair, or his skin tone, or you, you name it. And I went through all of that sort of stuff, and I told you the story in the elevator in my notes. Then some very nice, thoughtful people came up to me and said, could he have been circumcised? Oh, yeah, that's a great, that's a good answer. Good. Look at you. A bunch of good scholars. And so I thought, duh, yes, of course, that's probably one of the ways that they would have known that he was Hebrew. Um, and so, good on you, those of you who are so thoughtful people. And so, yes, we are at a point in time where the Israelites have received that covenant 
through Abraham and the representation of that covenant was male circumcision. And so Moses, having been beyond that first week or two, would have almost certainly been circumcised. And so by the time Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby, he's old enough. And that is a very wise perspective, that it could have been his circumcision that she knew that he was Hebrew. Um, another question I had was about the infanticide itself. I told you that there was no historic evidence of the infanticide in Egypt. And so we got a great question about whether there is historic evidence of the infanticide, infanticide in Matthew's gospel around Jesus's birth. And the answer is no. There is no historic evidence that Herod sought to kill the babies as we see recorded in Matthew. In fact, Matthew's gospel is the only place we find that story in any historic documents of any kind. You've heard me say before that there is historic evidence of Jesus having been a real person. And so the stories around Jesus and the miracles and what he taught and all the other stuff, most of that's held in the Bible. But the question of whether Jesus lived is really quite settled. Multiple historians that have no reason to support religiosity in any way says, yes, Jesus lived. Okay. It would make good sense if Herod went about killing lots of babies at some point in time, that that would be recorded. That's a horror that would have made the news, that would have made the historic record, and it is nowhere else to be found. So we do have an interesting pair of infanticide stories, neither of which have any historic evidence, but both are used in a very specific narrative way to emphasize how special the people are who are saved, right? Moses is saved against all odds. Jesus is saved against all odds. And those stories are meant to build on top of one another. As we get to the end of chapter two, prior to chapter three today, where Moses meets the burning bush, there is a passage at the very end of chapter two. If you look at verses 23 through 25 in chapter two, pull those up. What we see here is, Moses is gone, right? Moses has fled. Moses is now in Midian. And what it says is, after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has not been absent but God might not have been really engaged. And now God is engaged. And now the product of God's engagement is what we are going to see in chapter three. All right, we good with that? That's the first section. Any questions about that? Because remember, as we study these stories, it's the nature of the characters in the story. It's also the nature of God. It is very appropriate for us to investigate ourselves, the nature of God and the way God was understood by the people. Now, what I don't want us to do, and you've heard me say this throughout the years, I don't want us to ask a question like, why did God say that? Or why did God do that? Because it is almost certain God did not say or do exactly what is here. A better question is, why did the people think God would have said or done those things? And that helps us to understand the mind of God because we are faithful people, right? We want to understand the mind of God in our own life. And if we can somehow learn from other faithful people in history, probably more faithful than us, it will help us in our own discipleship to understand and discern God more fully as we go about it today. So any thoughts or questions on that? I'm looking at my regular question askers. <laughs> All right, and a reminder that if you're watching online, feel free to send your, put your questions up in the chat or you can email Bub directly. Um, if you don't want to ask your question publicly, we can keep that anonymous and we can get to that today or next week. All right, then let's get to the burning bush. Here comes the good stuff. I know I say that every week, but it's good. All right, chapter three, we're going to read the first few verses. Here we go. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. 
He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. All right, we'll pause there. Let's just set the scene here. The scene is just a regular day, right? Moses is at work. He's going about his stuff. As we talked about last week, Moses has found himself in Midian, and Midian is a location geographically that is not easy to grow stuff. And so the people who live in this area would have been shepherds, herdsmen. They would have had flocks of whatever and would have been taking them around to find food to eat. When I say a desert, we might immediately think something like the Sahara, right, where it's sandy and it's desolate. It's not that kind of desert. Think a bit more like the deserts you would see in Arizona or places like that. It's very rocky, very arid, but not devoid of greenery. It's just really hard to find. And so a shepherd in this region, like Moses, would have actually needed to lead the animals to places where they could probably find some grass. That could be a little oasis. Maybe it rained a day or two ago and they know water pooled up in this particular area and maybe some stuff had grown. And so Moses is doing hard work, right? We talked about who shepherds were. Shepherds were strong. They were defensive. They would fight off the predators looking to eat the small animals they were watching. And so Moses is walking along and he sees the bush and the bush is on fire and the bush is not consumed. And Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight. And I bet in a few moments, Moses wished he would have been like, eh, that bush and kept walking. But he turned aside, right? Which you know, too bad for him, because when he turned aside, what does it say? I love this. It says, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, he called out to him in the bush, as if, had he not gone to look at the bush, maybe God would have let him pass by. But there was something in Moses's interest that caught God's attention. Don't pass over that, because we often think Moses might be the special person to do that thing. But what if Moses was just interested enough to get himself in trouble? He was just curious enough that God thought, ah, this one, this one will do, right? And so then God calls out, the angel of the Lord is there, right? And God calls out and calls him by name. And Moses says, here I am. I like the sequence of the angel before God. That's an interesting note here, because it could have just been God in the bush, but we see that the angel of the Lord, right? What does it say in verse 2? The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame. Then God's voice, and God appeared. I like that God understands that God is very scary, right? Angels are scary enough. We've talked in here before about how angels are not fat babies with wings, right? Angels are warriors. We know. St. Michael, right? What did St. Michael do? Armor, sword, killing the great Satan, right? I mean, these are warriors. So if that person appeared to you, th that would not be a fun moment. You would be scared, right? Angels are scary. Well, how much more scary than is God? And so there is this almost acknowledgement or gentleness of easing Moses into what will be a very intense moment, right? Angel first, warm him up, and then God, right? You kind of hit him with the soft before you hit him with the hard. And so God then comes and God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We might ask why God didn't just say, 
I am God. What does Moses know of God? It never really explains, the Bible never really explains what Moses does or does not know. But I think it's very fair for us to consider the way Moses grew up. Moses was born, saved on the river, nursed for a bit, but then grew up in Egypt before somehow acknowledging that he was an Israelite and then getting in trouble and having to leave. It is very feasible to consider that Moses knew nothing of Yahweh, nothing of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and jo Joseph. I'm sorry, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nothing. So here, what God is doing is trying to make a connection so that Moses knows this God, this God, is the right God. And I say that because, I, I forget if it's been a couple years since we've dealt with this in here. We like to think that Judaism is monotheistic. It is kinda, but it gets there over time. It is an evolution. At the very beginning, Judaism simply believes in one, that one God is most important, Yahweh. But it's not as if they don't believe that other gods are out there. They just believe their God's best. Whereas in Egypt, you have a whole pantheon of gods, and they're ordered in their primacy. And we know this. We've all studied Greek or Roman mythology, right? Egyptian mythology is very similar. You've got the real strong gods, and you've got the kind of strong gods, and you've got the weak gods, and all of that stuff. What is unique about Judaism at this point in time in this part of the world is that they pick one. It's not that they only believe in one. They just pick the one they think is strongest. And we see that this is really the case when we pair this up with the exile. In the exile, they want to tell their story of why their God is best. And so they take the stories of the other gods of the Babylonians and they retell those stories in a way that one-ups the Babylonian gods. So when they tell the story of creation or they tell the story of the flood, those stories already existed in the Babylonian pantheon. But what the Jews do is they twist those stories around and they expand and refine those stories to say, yeah, 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 you have those gods, but we have the God. In this moment, there is a sensitivity in telling the story that Moses would have been raised up with the pantheon, right? He was raised in the Egyptian court. So he would have seen many, many gods functioning in many, many different ways and believed in different ways by all the people. And what Yahweh is doing right here is actually saying, I am the God. And I'm not just a God out there. I'm the God of your father, and I'm the God of your ancestors. And so Moses is revealed, understands in this moment that a bigger thing is happening right now than just some random godly experience out in the wilderness. So we're going to pause there, but I've got one little note before we end this second section. <laughs> Who is Moses' father-in-law? We need to address this because if you've read at all or you read ahead or maybe you've read Exodus in the past, you know that we have multiple names for Moses' father-in-law over the course of this. We've already experienced two. We've got Ruel, which we saw earlier. Now we've got Jethro, and at some point we're going to have Hobab. And then technically Jethri is coming, but that's probably just someone wrote wrong and it was really Jethro. And so we've got at least three names here for Moses' father-in-law, and I just want to, as an aside, address what is potentially happening here. We're going to start with Ruel. So Ruel could just be another name for Jethro, in the sense that Jacob was renamed Israel. And so it, it could just be that, you know, you've got almost a nickname or a called-by-name. You've got the proper name and you've got the called-by-name sort of thing. Could be that simple. Ruel could also be the head of the entire clan, and it might be that Jethro is the head of the tribe, of a family in the tribe that is connected to a clan. And in that part of the world at this time, whoever's the head of the clan is the father of everybody. And so in that sense, everybody, like the chief, in a sense, everybody is a son or daughter of the chief. Or we understand this, right? We call ourselves sons and daughters of God, right? I mean, we can use that language and in time it could become confusing because we don't 
pick up the nuance in the way that that is spelled out in the text. It could also be that Ruel is his real name, whereas Jethro is a title, because Jethro actually means in Hebrew excellence. And so it could be that Jethro is almost a priestly title. So you become a Jethro, so to speak, and your name might be Ruel. That's similar to he goes by two names. So we can kind of explain away Ruel and Jethro. Then we get to Hobab. In Numbers, there are multiple references to Moses' father-in-law being named Hobab, the son of Ruel. It is almost certain that we could explain this away in some interesting Hebrew stuff. And now I'm going to draw. Yay, you knew it was coming. Okay. Let me make sure I can get this in the screen. Yes, good, okay. You may or may not know that in ancient Hebrew, there are no vowels. So when people went back to try to figure out ancient Hebrew, they actually had to read words with all the vowels taken away. And so I could show you an example of this, but if you just kind of picture in your mind any sentence you want, take all the vowels out, you can see that there are many words that could be this word or that word based on whether the vowel is there. I mean, think of the letter, if you see the letter F, right? Is that of or if? If you see the letter S, is that as or is, right? And on and on and on, and those are only the simple words. In Numbers, we get this name, Hobab, as the father-in-law of Moses. In Hebrew, there are two words for father-in-law and brother-in-law. One is Hatan, and one is Hoten. The problem is, this is Hebrew for Hoten, and this is Hebrew for Hatan. At some point in time, people started to actually indicate the sounds that would be made between the consonants to help people read the ancient Hebrew more clearly. And this gets even worse because to say hoten or hatan, the markings that would be above the letters, I have to make sure I'm doing this right, were exactly the same. So it's very likely that Hobab is not the father-in-law, but the brother-in-law. And that there was just simply a mistake and the tradition was formed in that particular passage that he's the father-in-law. I know that's a lot more detail than you really wanted, but I found that kind of nerd fun and wanted you all to know that. Okay. Okay. Let's keep going. Any questions about this second chat, this second section before we keep going? Yes. Could it be that Moses was married more to more than one person? We have no indication of that. Is that possible or would that have been normal in some way at that point? Yes. And so for sure, it could be that. Um, the, problem, the problem with that idea is that when we get to Numbers, it says, Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, and then we see later that the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, are. So it places the same name in two different roles. And so in that regard, if it were just one that was wrong, that's legitimate. Because they use the same person and they, ref and they connect him relatively to Moses in two different ways, it's easy to explain the mistake between brother-in-law and father-in-law. And that's probably as easy as it is. And, and the truth is, we don't know because of the way Hebrew is written. We can make a best guess. And of course, you know, as I was parsing this out, I thought, why wouldn't they have just fixed that? Just in the translation, just go with brother-in-law. I mean, it seems like it would just be less confusing. There is probably some very smart reason why that has never been corrected. 
I do not know. But I simply wanted you, as we go through this, because we're going to get into a little bit of numbers, we've already seen that Ruel and Jethro are both his father-in-law, and that's a little confusing, and there's a third person, and I just kind of wanted to say, we're going to go with Jethro, and that is good enough. All right. Any other questions or comments? Right on, then let's get to the mission. Section three. Let's continue at chapter three, verse seven. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. Now I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So the way the story is told here starts with God, God hearing the cry of the Israelites, God hearing the cry of my people. He knows their suffering. He hears their cries. And God is responding. God is coming down in order to respond. So building off of the end of chapter 2, which we began with today, we are now here with the physical manifestation of God's concern for the Israelites. God's remembering, recalling, is mindful of his promise to Abraham to take these people and bring them to the promised land. Now, it's a bit of a problem because there are people living in this land already, and we see who they are, Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, and on. We will address that at the end of this year. But the land is not empty. The land is currently occupied. And the promise is made that they will, the Israelites will take that land, and that land is taken in a very violent way. And so we'll address that, not today. Up to this point, Moses is likely tracking God, right? I am God of your father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Great. Moses is like, okay, good. God, hello. And then God says, I've heard the cry of the Israelites. And Moses is probably like, good, it's about time. Because Moses is sympathetic to what is going on with the Israelites in Egypt. We know this. Why? Because he went and he killed one of the Egyptian taskmasters. He already has this passion in him for the justice. And the justice is not being realized in Egypt with the Israelites. And Moses has acted out in a way that got him in big trouble, but in a way that is sympathetic to now God's desire to go and save the Israelites. And so Moses is probably like, yeah, that's really good. And then God drops the bomb as if it's totally nothing. So come. I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And Moses is like, what, whoa, wait. So, you know, yes, yes, what? You know, this is, God tosses this off. Like, let's go, you know. And Moses is thinking, what? It, what are you talking about? And so Moses is stunned. This call to Moses is a stunning moment. What I want us to do is put ourselves in Moses's place. I said at the beginning of this chapter, it's just a normal day. Moses is going about his business. He is at work. He is doing the work he is supposed to do. He has found this place where he is settled. He's gotten married. He's good at his job. He's out there just doing his life well. And then he sees this bush. And he's curious enough to go see what's happening with this bush. And God speaks to him. And God says some good things. Yeah. Yes, I'm glad you're here. Yes, I'm glad you are coming down to help the people who are hurting. I'm glad that you are responding to the needs of the world. I'm glad that you want to save the people who are in trouble. And, oh, me? No, not me. We see that Moses objects. But before we get to that part of today's study, I really want to invite you to feel this. We all, Every one of us knows how this feels. You are not human 
if you do not sympathize with the pain in the world around you. It may be pain that you see on the street corner. It may be pain that you see in your neighborhood, in your family, with your friends. It could be pain that you see across the world. We know it exists. Our humanity forces us to feel the compassion. And yet, how many of us want to actually change the things we are doing today, the business we are going about today, and answer God's call to actually be the person that helps solve the problem? I totally get what Moses is about to do because he's just a guy doing his simple work. He kind of likes his life. He didn't, it was rocky there for a little bit, but he sort of figured things out and stuff is smoothed over and he's kind of satisfied. All's good, right? He's, if he were in the prayer circle, his, his check-in would be, things are good right now, right? And here God drops this bomb on him. And so he's going to respond to God the way we respond to God. And I want us to feel and struggle with his objection. So before we get into that, any thoughts or questions? Chicken. I know, I can see it in your faces. You're all like, crap. You know, I don't, I don't like this study today. They're like, no, no, no. I did not come here for this. Oh, yes, you did. Here we go. Ready? Steal yourselves because this is hard stuff. All right, here we go. Verse 11. Let's jump in. But Moses said, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And he said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. We'll stop there. Moses hears God's ask and he says, but. In the next few verses, Moses will say, but God, seven times. Okay? Moses is going to argue with God. And this first argument, I love this. If you kind of put yourself in the role of parent or teacher with a child or a student, you totally understand this, right? The first but is responded to with all kinds of grace and generosity, right? Okay, so you say, Moses, I need you to do this. Let's go do this. And Moses says, but God, who am I to go to Pharaoh and have this done? And so then God's like, oh, I'm going to be with you. That's okay. Don't worry. I'm going to come with you and I'm going to help you. And then when it's all done, you're going to come back here and we're going to worship on this mountain. It's all going to be so great. So God kind of just skips over all the trouble because he thinks all Moses needs is a little pick-me-up. You know, we're going to do it together, you know. And then Moses keeps on and keeps on. So Moses here is genuinely afraid. God's in this bush speaking in this voice, calling him to a task that he knows he wants to fix, right? We know that Moses wants the Israelites to be saved. We know he does, but he doesn't want to do it. He just wants it to be done because he knows it's important. And he knows it's important enough to where he's done a little thing. Well, it's not a little thing. He killed a guy, but you know, In that sense, you know, he sort of did a small things. We know that he believes this, right? So it's sort of like we want to end homelessness. So we go and we serve a meal. Like we care enough to go and make some food and maybe even serve some food. That's enough, right? I mean, we did our thing. Check. We are nice people. Okay. We know we want for children growing up in stressful poverty to feel some love and get a leg up and get some help. And so we tutor a child, but only once a month and only for a few months. And they're sweet. And we did that. And we spent that time. That's good enough, right? We know this. 
we do a little, and then we convince ourselves it really is enough, that we care, that we're good. Moses has, in this moment, thought he did a thing, right? He did his part, and he would love for God to actually go and solve this problem, but God needs to solve this problem, right? Like, not Moses. God needs to solve poverty, right? I mean, not necessarily us, and on and on and on. This is hard. And Moses right here is struggling in a way that we struggle, if we are even courageous enough to struggle, for most of us, we like to just repress all this stuff, but I'm gonna force it up out of you like vomit. Here we go. Yes, love. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Um, okay, we'll pause. The question is, when did Moses realize he was an Israelite, not an Egyptian? The answer is, nah, we're not sure. But last week I said that there are differences in appearance, difference in look. It is almost certain that Moses, having been rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, would have known that, would have been told at some point that he was not perhaps the bloodline adopted or some such like that. And he when we hear the story that Moses goes and kills the Egyptian taskmaster hurting the Israelites, he obviously knows something because it refers to in the story his people. He saw someone hurting his people, his kin. And so there's something in his upbringing that made that clear. One of the things that could be is he could have spent years of his early life with his biological mother and siblings. We don't know. It could have been 12 months. It could have been three or five years. We're not certain. But we do know he knows. And so when he gets to this point in time, we know he cares that the Israelites are in pain. We understand why he feels like this is something good to do, but he is still human. And I will tell you, if you read this book, this moment is so rich the way it is told because he is so, so us. It is so easy for us to read these stories and to hear Moses and think Moses is this grand, perfect human. And of course Moses would have gone and threatened Pharaoh and called down the plagues and walked through the Red Sea. What I really want us to know in the character of this man is this moment. There might not be another moment around his character that is so important for us than right here. In a very real sense, God puts this call to every person, every one of us, and we all respond and fall short. And that's okay. We are still human. Moses will fall short too. You probably know at this point that Moses does not go to the promised land. We'll get there. If you don't know off the top of your head why, we'll tell you why. He's human too. But as Moses argues with God, Moses is convinced, kind of. Moses is also told to just do it anyway. So we're going to keep on. Any questions? Comments? No? Okay. But Moses said, Moses objects seven different times in these next few verses, which we're not going to read every single verse. Moses effectively pulls out every excuse he can. It starts with, who am I? I'm not important, right? I'm not somebody who can do this. Then it goes to, well, they're going to ask hard questions. And what am I going to do? What am I going to say to them when they ask these hard questions? Then it goes to, they're not going to believe me, right? I, I, I'm not going to be believed. What, what, what happens when they challenge me? Fourth, I'm not a public speaker. I am a bad person to do this. I can't form good words. Why? Why? And then five, I don't want to. Okay. That's exactly right. You know, he tries everything, and God has a comeback and a comeback and a comeback. And finally, Moses just like, just no. Let's go through each one. 
because it's it's almost like the stages of grief or something you know i can even imagine you are there you're on the mountain there's a bush on fire it's not being consumed you're hearing this disembodied voice you're like it's got to be god right i mean what else can it be and he's telling me to do this thing and he's trying to get out of it but it's like he's drowning in the truth that he's going to have to do it anyway but he's going to give it his best shot to not have to go so we're going to start with why me so moses says verse chapter 3 verse 12 he really does say why me who am i i'm not important and god says i will be with you god does not call moses because he has some unique experience or skill set and what is interesting here is that it would make sense to us that Moses does have a unique skill set. Here he is, born of an Israelite, saved by Pharaoh's household, raised in Pharaoh's court in Egypt, but then he got in trouble and he found himself out in the wilderness. In a sense, he's got some political cachet, right? He can go back to Pharaoh's court because he knows these people. These are not random Egyptian leaders. He knows them, they know him. So in a sense, he's got the connections to actually make this happen. When you want something done in government, you call a guy who knows a guy, right? Or you call your friend who's an elected person, or you talk to a whatever. We know how to do this. We know how that one degree works, where we get our foot in the door and we get ourselves heard because we actually have a skill set, so to speak, to be heard. It makes perfect sense that God would call Moses. He is uniquely positioned to actually do this thing that needs done. But that's not what God says. When Moses says, why me? God says, it's okay, I'll be with you. The storyteller makes it very clear here that Moses is not being called to do this hard thing because he has capacity. Moses is being called to do this hard thing and God will be with him to get it done. Ooh. I hope that hits you hard. Because we often think that we aren't the right person to help to solve a problem. We often think we are not good enough. Who am I to solve such a complicated problem? Or to do such a powerful thing? And yet God's response here to a person who should have all that power and authority and capacity is that that doesn't matter at all. I'm going to be with you. I will actually be with you to help get this done. It doesn't actually matter who you are or what you've done or what you know or who you know. It matters that I have called you. Ooh, that upset some apple carts in here, doesn't it? Let's go to number two. I know, if you, you all are physically squirming. It's wonderful. Okay, I can't see you all online, but I hope you're also like, Meh. you know. <laughs> That's just the first. Here we go, we have more. Two. Verse 14, Moses says, they're going to ask hard questions. What if they say, who sent me? What do I say? And God says, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. There's your answer. So now God has gone from that first objection, why me, where God was like, oh, it's going to be fine. I'm going to be with you. And then we'll get back here and we're going to all pray together, right? That was God's response. Then Moses says, but wait a minute, they're going to ask some hard questions. What if they ask me who sent me? And I can almost see God's pivot. It's like, oh, he's going to be trouble. And so now I've got to actually explain myself, right? Okay, so this is what happens. I am who I am. Tell them what I said to you. Moses turned toward the bush to check it out. And when God spoke, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God says to Moses, tell them that because they are like you. They are human too. They are Israelite too. They may not 
be actively doing their faith right now, but they understand the connection. They understand that I have been connected to their people in the past, and I am back. That is who I am. And so then Moses says, what if they don't believe me? Chapter 4, verse 2, God says, what is that in your hand? And Moses said, a staff. And he said, throw it to the ground. So Moses threw the staff on the ground, and it became a snake, and Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand, grasped it, and it became a staff in his hand, so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to you. What if they don't believe me? Then show them that I sent you. Show them that you have been called for real. Yes, there is this magic moment. Staff becomes a snake and back to a staff. But what's really happening here is God says, show them that you really believe this. Be convicted. Go with the confidence that I am with you. And they will feel the presence because of you. Fourth, I'm not a good speaker. <laughs> Moses hits this one very hard. I am not good of tongue, and I confuse my words, and I stutter, and whatever. Chapter 4, verse 11, God says, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. So again, Moses tries to say, I don't have the stuff. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the ability. I will stumble over my words. And he knows if I'm going to Pharaoh's court to effectively barter with and negotiate with Pharaoh, I've got to have the words. I'm not a public speaker. I don't like talking in front of people. I don't like putting my faith and my emotion and my passion into words. Does that sound familiar? How many times do I hear people say, well, I, I can't say that. I can't pray in front of other people. I can't go and encourage people to come with me to church or to Bible study. I can't tell people what they might do to be helpful. I can't use those words. I'm not eloquent. God says, I'm going to be there. I'm going to put the words in your mouth. This idea that in our faithfulness, God will put the words in our mouth is something that is in the thread of Judaism and Christianity for centuries. Every time I get up to preach, I actually say a little prayer in which I say, may your word be spoken and your word be heard. That's it. Because it's not mine. I don't want it to be mine. I hope it's not mine. I hope it's something better than me. And this is rooted in this moment where God says, I'm going to give you the word. Trust that the words will come. And then finally, Moses says, I don't want to do this in someone else. And this is the funniest response. God basically says, no, now get on with it. <laughs> I, I love this. And not exactly. I mean, in, in that, he says, if you turn... <laughs> so, let me make, here we go. Okay, if you look at verse 13, verse 13, but he said, but Moses said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. I love that. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, what if your brother Aaron the Levite, I know that he can speak fluently, even now he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, his heart's going to be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with you in your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. Take your staff in your hand, and with that you will perform these signs. In other words, God said, for God's sake, Go get Aaron. He's coming anyway. Take Aaron with you and get on with it. Yes. So why spend all this time explaining this debate that Moses has with God? If you put your place, 
Place yourself in the storyteller's position. Remember they wrote this story hundreds of years later. Moses is a big deal. Moses received the commandments. Moses helped shape the law. Moses led them to the edge of the promised land. Moses saved them on behalf of God. Moses is a big deal. When you're telling the story of Moses, you know what would have been really nice is if the story went something like this. Moses was tending his flocks. He saw a bush burning but not consumed. God spoke to him out of the bush and said, I need you to save my people. And Moses says, I'm on it, right? <laughs> that would have been so much more impressive, right? Because you've been like, yes, Moses, go save the people. And instead we get an entire chapter plus of Moses arguing back and forth with how he's not the one to do it. That's not an accident. The storyteller told this story in that way. Why? My opinion is because we are all like Moses. And if Moses were a superhero, we could easily write him off as being someone we could never be. And instead, in this little moment, we see that Moses is so human. And Moses is afraid. And Moses wants a big thing to happen, but he doesn't want to be the one that does it. He really, really wants God to go get someone else. And God just will not relent. I think every one of us here knows that feeling. It might be a big thing or a small thing. And we may have heard that, felt that feeling many times in our life. We are pulled and pulled and pulled and we resist because it's not convenient, it's not the right time, we are afraid, we don't think we have the skills, and God still just picks at us and picks at us and calls us over and over and over again. And the promise is there that we will have what we need. We just have to believe. And this story is the place where we get the very critical idea that God does not call the equipped. God equips the called. We are the ones who are called. It does not matter what we can do or what we have done. When God calls us to something, God's going to make sure we can do it. We just kind of have to say yes. And we can argue all we want, but in the end, I, I certainly don't want to be in the position where God finally gets angry at me and says, get on with it, right? And we have great stories of this, right? I think of Jonah and I don't want to be swallowed by that fish. <laughs> and so we are all here invited to put ourselves in Moses' place, to acknowledge that we are called and that we will be equipped for our call. If only we say yes. That's it for today. <laughs> and on that note, I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. I'll see you next week. Bye.